passage is entitled Encouragement of Joshua. After the death of Moses, the Lord's servant, the Lord spoke to Joshua, son of Nun, who had served Moses. Moses, my servant, is dead. Now you and all the people prepare to cross over the Jordan to the land I am giving the Israelites. I have given you every place where the sole of your foot treads, just as I promised Moses. Your territory will be from the wilderness and Lebanon to the great Euphrates River, all the land of the Hittites and west of the Mediterranean Sea. No one will be able to stand against you as long as you live. I will be with you just as I was with Moses. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you will distribute the land I swore to their fathers to give them as an inheritance. Above all, be strong and very courageous to carefully observe the whole instruction my servant Moses commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or the left, so that you will have success wherever you go. This book of instruction must not depart from your mouth. You are to recite it day and night, so that you may carefully observe every written in it, everything written in it. For then you will prosper and succeed in whatever you do. Haven't I commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or discouraged. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. The second reading is from the book of John, chapter 16, uh, page 995, starting at verse 5. John, chapter 16, starting at verse 5. But now I am going away to him who sent me, and not one of you asks me, where are you going? Yet because I have spoken these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I am telling you the truth. It is for your benefit that I go away, because if I don't go away, the counsellor will not come to you. If I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will convict the world about sin, righteousness and judgment. About sin, because they do not believe in me. About righteousness, because I am going to the Father and you will no longer see me. About judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. I still have many things to tell you, but you can't bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own, but he will speak whatever he hears. He will also declare to you what is to come. He will glorify me because he will take from what is mine and declare it to you. Everything the Father has is mine. This is why I told you that he takes from what is mine and will declare it to you. A little while and you will no longer see me. Again, a little while and you will see me. Therefore, some of his disciples said to one another, What is this he tells us? A little while and you will not see me. Again, a little while and you will see me. And because I am going to the Father, they said, What is this he is saying? A little while? We don't know what he's talking about. Jesus knew they wanted to question him. So he said to them, 
Are you asking one another what I said? A little while and you will not see me. Again, a little while and you will see me. I assure you, you will weep and wail, but the world will rejoice. You will become sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. When a woman is in labour, she has pain because her time has come. But when she has given birth to a child, she no longer remembers the suffering because of the joy that a person who has been born into the world. So you also have sorrow now, but I will see you again. Your hearts will rejoice and no one will rob you of your joy. In that day, you will not ask me anything. I assure you, anything you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. Until now, you have asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive so that your joy may be complete. I have spoken these things to you in figures of speech. A time is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures, but I will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name. I am not telling you that I will make requests to the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world. Again, I am leaving the world and going to the Father. Ah, his disciples said, now you're speaking plainly and not using figurative language. Now we know, now we know that you know everything and don't need anyone to question you. By this we believe that you came from God. Jesus responded to them, do you now believe? Look, an hour is coming and has come when each of you will be scattered to his own home and you will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. You will have suffering in this world. Be courageous. I have conquered the world. This is the word of the Lord. How good was uh, Dean's kids' talk? How good was it? I felt like I was sitting down and saying, that's an awesome sermon. Let's just remember the traffic lights. Um, I'm here to talk about the Holy Spirit. As Dean said, uh, the Holy Spirit is, is a, a wonderful part of your Christian life, to have the Holy Spirit alive in you and working in you and indwelling in you. We can't live the Christian life without the personal work of the Holy Spirit, can we? I've been a Christian for about uh, two years, so I was converted back in 1990 in the UK, uh, but about two years, and, and I visited a church that was totally different to the church that I'd been going to. Uh, and this church was kind of like an eye-opener for me, because uh, the Word was taught very faithfully. Uh, you saw the Word changing people's lives, and they talked about the Holy Spirit as well. I've been in church for two years, and no one had mentioned the Holy Spirit. The Father, the Son, but, but not the Holy Spirit. And it was that moment in my Christian life, and I, I realized that without the Holy Spirit, I, I cannot understand the Word of God. Without the Holy Spirit, I, I can't be convicted of what is good and what is, what is bad. Without the Holy Spirit, I can't grow in my Christian life. I need the Holy Spirit. The Spirit's at work in me and alive in me. 
I wonder whether you can identify with these quotes on the screen. The first one's from Augustine. Beautiful quote. Without the Spirit of God, we can neither love God nor keep his commandments. We can do nothing without him. Uh, J.I. Packer said these words. The, the Christian's life is in all its aspects, intellectual and ethical, devotional and relational, upsurging in worship and outgoing in witness. It is supernatural. Only the Spirit can initiate and sustain it. So apart from him, that is the Holy Spirit, not only will there be no lively believers and no lively congregations, there'll be no believers and no congregations at all. Or Koi Tamboom says this, trying to do the Lord's work in your own strength is the most confusing, exhausting, and tedious of all work. But when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, then the ministry of Jesus just flows out of you. Or lastly, Billy Graham said, the Holy Spirit illuminates the minds of people, makes us yearn for God, and takes spiritual truth and makes it understandable to us. We need the Spirit of God. Without Him, we can do nothing. We often say the creed, you know, we believe in the Spirit, the Lord and the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who has spoken through the prophets. But let me ask you, do you believe in the personal work of the Holy Spirit? Do you recognize that without him you can do nothing? That's our focus this morning, the personal work of the Holy Spirit, because that's what John 16 is all about. I should say that's who John 16 is all about. Verse 7 is such a strange verse, isn't it? Jesus says, I'm telling you the truth. It is for your benefit that I go away. If you imagine you're a disciple and you've lived with Jesus for three years, he's been your best friend, he's been your mentor, he's been your comforter, he's been your counselor, and he tells you, I'm going away, and it's for your benefit that I go away. Really, Jesus? That can't be right. Look what he says. If I don't go away, the counselor... The Holy Spirit will not come to you. Remember from John 14, the word counselor, it doesn't mean cuddler, it doesn't mean therapist, it means the advocate, it means the one who comes alongside you in a law court to testify about your character, the one who provides for you, the one who cares for you, the one who protects you. The counselor is God's presence with you, God's power in you, God's peace in you. And now read verse 7 again. If I don't go away, the counselor will not come to you. He's saying it is better for you to have the Spirit of God living in you than for me to be walking alongside you. Jesus will say to us this morning, yes, you lived 2,000 years after. It's better now to have the Spirit alive and at work in you than to have been around then with Jesus walking alongside you. If I go, verse 7, I will send him, the Holy Spirit, to you. So do you recognize your need of the Holy Spirit, that you can do nothing without the personal work of the Holy Spirit? I've got two words for you this morning. The 
first word is convict, not convict, but convict. The convicting work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit convicts the world, that is unbelievers, the people living without God. The Holy Spirit shows people that they need Jesus. See that in verse 8? When he comes, when the Spirit comes, he will convict the world about sin and righteousness and judgment. That's the, the red traffic light. Stop! You need Jesus. The word convict there means to expose. It means to convince, to lay bare your need of Jesus. It's the picture of the the police helicopter with a massive spotlight underneath, and you turn on the spotlight and it exposes a whole suburb. It exposes darkness. That's the work of the Spirit. When he comes, verse 8, he will convict the world. He will expose, he will persuade the world. They're lost without Christ. He will convince people they need Jesus. He will expose guilt and shame. When the Spirit's at work in your life, you say, yes, I'm a sinner. And yes, Jesus is my saviour. See, without the Holy Spirit, you could never do that, could you? Listen to Spurgeon. He says, a, a sinner can no more repent and believe without the work of the Holy Spirit than he can create a whole new world. If you're here this morning, you've been convicted of sin and righteousness and judgment, that's because the Spirit has shone into your heart and your mind. You can't do life without him. I want you to imagine that uh, this afternoon you go down to, to Manly Beach and maybe you're playing beach volleyball. Or maybe just lying, sort of tanning it up on the beach. And the surf lifer comes running up to you and he grabs you around the neck and says, I'm here to save you. You go, what an idiot. I'm fit, I'm healthy, I don't need saving. Isn't that what the Spirit does to our world? He, he, he comes into our world and he says, I'm here to save you. And he goes, but I don't need saving. He says, yes, you do. You're blind to how desperate your plight is. You're unaware of your sin. You're unaware of your unrighteousness. You're unaware of the coming judgment. And the Spirit shines a spotlight onto your life and says, you need Jesus. If Jesus walked into Kirribilli this morning, what would he do? What did he do when he walked on earth? Remember Jesus met that woman at the well? Within minutes... Jesus had showed her that her life was empty, that she needed Jesus. When Jesus met the Pharisees, within seconds he exposed their, their pride and their religiosity and their intolerance. That's what Jesus came to do, to expose the emptiness of life without him. Do you remember how the Spirit's described in John chapter 14? He's described as another Jesus. And so the Spirit just does what Jesus did, supernaturally persuading people that they're in trouble without Jesus. Look again at verse 8. When he comes, he will convict the world, unbelievers, about sin and righteousness and judgment. About sin, verse 9, because they don't believe in me. Notice the word there for sin is singular, not plural. He's not talking about 
sins, plural. He's not talking about the list of the wrong things that we do. He's not talking about your naughty list. The problem with that naughty list is that we automatically put certain sins at the top of that list. We, we muddle up the cause and the effect. Sins are the effect. The sin is the cause. The sin, singular, is that attitude of rejecting God, ignoring God, thinking you do life without God. About sin, verse 9, because they don't believe, they don't recognize Jesus. And that's our world, isn't it? Imagine that you raised your child and you fed your child and you birthed your child and you nurtured your child, you provided for your child, you gave your child everything they needed to survive in the world. And then your child left home and never had any contact and never said thank you and acted as though you never existed. Isn't that the reality of our world? Living in God's world and no reference to him and no gratitude. And the Spirit comes and his work of convicting of sin is to expose you. there is a God. Stop ignoring him. He exposes sin in people's hearts. About righteousness, verse 10, because I am going to the Father and you will no longer see me. That's the work of the Spirit to, to show you the righteousness of Christ, the, the perfection of Jesus. The work of the Spirit is to show you perfect patience, perfect kindness, perfect compassion, perfect humility, perfect love. Where do you see that? In the person of Jesus. It's only when you're, you're face to face with perfection that you see how imperfect and how unrighteous you really are, isn't it? I remember about five years ago, uh, someone came to this church and we got chatting over morning tea and I was sort of boasting a bit about my athletic abilities, running triathlons. And he said, oh, let's go for a run this week. As I went for a run, he absolutely left me for dead. And as we were running, he said, oh, yeah, I competed in the Olympics. (laughs) And, you know, against that kind of uh, perfection or someone who's really good at something, my pathetic sort of long-distance running uh, inadequacies were all exposed. And when you're face-to-face with Jesus, you are exposed to your inadequacies. You're not perfect. You're not righteous. Verse 10, the reason that Jesus could go to the Father is because he was righteous. And the Holy Spirit works in your life to, to show you how glorious Jesus is and how unrighteous you are. The Holy Spirit, verse 11, he convicts you about judgment. The reality of judgment, the need for judgment, that God is your judge. And, verse 11, that the the, the ruler of this world, that is the devil, that is Satan, was defeated at the cross. Now that's the work of the Spirit in our world. What what, what prompts people to to wake up one morning and, and suddenly say, I think I need to go to church? And they walk through the doors and they meet Jesus. Who, who prompts them to do that? What prompted you to pick up a Bible and to read the Gospels? What prompted me in 1990 to read the Gospel of Luke and to meet Jesus? I had no church upbringing. That's the work of the Spirit. To shine the light of the Gospel, to expose sin, to expose unrighteousness, to convince us of judgment. So if you're here this morning and you call yourself a believer in Christ, 
the Holy Spirit has done a powerful work in your life, hasn't he? At some point in your life, he was at work to convict you. He was at work to convince you and to persuade you and to open your eyes to Jesus. Without him, you would not be sitting here this morning. Is he following Christ? It's not just an intellectual pursuit, is it? Listen to Tozer. He says, if you have to be reasoned into Christianity, some wise fellow can also reason you out of it. But if you come to Christ by a flash of the Holy Spirit, so that by intuition you know, you know that you are God's child, you know it by the text of the Scriptures, but you also know it by the inner light, the inner illumination of the Spirit, then no one can ever reason you out of that. Now that's why it's better we've got the Spirit. You know, those last few days of the federal election campaigns, you've got the the candidates jet-setting all over the country, and one day they visit Western Australia and Queensland and South Australia and New South Wales, all in one day. They do 36 hours constantly meeting people. Why do they do that? Because they think their presence is so important. They want to be there to persuade and to convict and convince. Jesus could not be in Australia and America and Asia physically all at the same time without the personal work of the Holy Spirit, could he? So how does the Holy Spirit convict the world about Jesus? Let's do some hard work in the text. Stick with me. This is mind-blowing. Verse 7. He says to the apostles, If I go, I will send the Spirit to you. To the apostles, to the disciples. But now read verse 8. When the Spirit comes, he will convict the world. Not just the apostles, but the world So somehow the Spirit coming to the apostles is going to convict the whole world about Jesus. How does that work? Verse 12. I still have many things to tell you apostles, Jesus says. But you can't bear them all now. You can't understand them. They're too confusing. They're too overwhelming. But when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you apostles into all the truth. He will guide you. He will reveal wonderful truths. And you'll go, aha, that's what it meant. When, when Jesus said that he was going to the cross, that's what he meant. When Jesus said he had defeated death, that's what it meant. For he, the Spirit, will not speak on his own. He will speak whatever he hears. He will also declare to you what is to come. He will glorify me, Jesus. That's the work of the Spirit, to spotlight Jesus, to bring glory to Jesus because he will take from what is mine and declare it to you. Everything the Father has is mine. That's why I told you he takes from what is mine and declare it to you. And you've got this glorious Trinitarian work here. So the Father reveals truth to the Son, and the Son speaks the truth. And the Son reveals truth to the Spirit, and the Spirit speaks the truth. But to whom does the Spirit speak the truth in these verses? Who did he guide in verse 13? The apostles. He guided them into all truth. Please don't misuse this verse. You are not one of the 11 apostles who were there. So we've got a problem, haven't we? The Spirit's going to speak to the apostles and to guide them into truth. And when the apostles speak by the Spirit, the world will be convicted. But we don't have the apostles, do we? See the problem? 
We haven't got Jesus. We haven't got the apostles. We haven't got Peter, James, and John standing here to testify by the Spirit, have we? Have we? We have, haven't we? We've got the Scriptures. We've got the words that Peter, James, John, Paul all heard. How do you get it? When Jesus spoke, lives were changed. When the apostles preached in the early church, lives were changed. And when the Scriptures are read, lives are changed. Listen very carefully. The, the Spirit's work of convicting the world is done through His words. This is the sword of the Spirit. This is sharpened a double-edged sp- uh, sword. If you want to see Jesus, you've got to have the Scriptures in there somehow. You know the, the standard phrase, uh, we aim to win people without words? It's a beautiful phrase, and I hope that you are seeking to win people by your good life and by your godly living. But at some point, words need to be spoken. At some point, you need to explain why you're living the Christian life, who Jesus is. And that's how the Spirit works to convict people, to show you Jesus. How does he do that? Through you and through the Scriptures. And this simple truth is so liberating in your life. I long for my brother and my sister and my family and my friends to know Christ. I'm not there. What can I do? I can pray that the Spirit would convict them. I can send them Christian books. I do send them Christian books. But I should send them a gospel, shouldn't I? I should send them the words of Jesus. I should send them a Bible. That's how I came to faith, just through reading Luke's gospel. In your evangelism, trust the power of the scriptures. Trust the power of the word. In your evangelism, trust the power of the spirit. It's not down to you to persuade people and convince people and to convict people. That's the work of the spirit. So leave it to him. It's liberating in terms of your ongoing Christian life because as you sit under the Scriptures, don't you get that? That You're constantly convicted again and again and again of your need for Jesus. As you sit under the Scriptures, you're constantly convicted of how unrighteous you are and how righteous Jesus is. It's liberating as a preacher. I pray two things every Sunday. Spirit of God empower me. And Spirit of God, convict people. Not down to me, is it? Empower me as a preacher and convict the people who are hearing. Let them see Jesus. That's the first work of the Spirit, is to convict the world and to convict you. So let me ask you personally, has he done that? Are you sitting here this morning convicted by the Spirit? You can't do your Christian life without the Spirit. It began with the work of the Spirit. It's an ongoing work of the Spirit. Here's my second word for you this morning. Joy. The Spirit convicts and the Spirit brings you joy. You can't miss that in the second half of the chapter. That word was repeated again and again and again. Joy, 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 joy. See that in verse 20? I assure you, disciples, you will weep and wail. The cross is about to happen. I'm about to die. And at that moment, the world will rejoice. They've got him dead like they wanted. And you, disciples, will become sorrowful. Look at it, but your sorrow will turn to to joy. 
When a woman is in labor, she has pain because her time has come. But when she's given birth to a child, she no longer remembers the suffering. I'm not sure about that. She no longer remembers the suffering because of the joy that a person has been born into the world. So you also have sorrow now, but I will see you again. Your hearts will rejoice. I love this line. And no one will rob you of your joy. The key question here is timing. When, in verse 22, will they see Jesus again? When will their sorrow turn to joy? If the timing in verse 22 is just talking about the the resurrection, when they see Jesus post-resurrection, the problem with that is that that joy only lasts, what, 40 days? And then he's gone. It can't be dependent on always seeing Jesus face to face. If the when I see you again is the, the last day, the second coming, if that is true, the problem then is that uh, the Christian life now is just doom and gloom and groaning until we have joy in the last day. That can't be right. So when will their sorrow turn to joy? When will they see Jesus every day, always? And the answer is the coming of the Holy Spirit. When the Spirit comes, he reminds them of all truth. They see Jesus, they are convicted about Jesus, and their hearts rejoice. And look at verse 22, no one will rob you of your joy. Let me just remind you that the Christian joy is not the same as Christian joviality. It's not the same as happiness. The joy is that constant, deep contentment and security and satisfaction. It's the joy that Paul had as he prayed in prison, the joy that Jesus has as he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. And the work of the Holy Spirit in our life as believers is to bring you joy, constant joy, complete joy. See that in verse 24? Your joy may be complete. So how does that work? How can a a Christian in the Ukraine today have constant and complete joy? How can the Christian in Syria have constant and complete joy? Where does your joy come, come from as you struggle with temptation or deal with depression or battle a betrayal? How do you have a constant, complete joy in Jesus? The answer is, it's through your prayer life. It's through your prayer life. It's what struck me this week. See the link in verse 22 and 24? You'll have sorrow now, but I will see you again when I've risen from the tomb, when the Spirit comes, and your hearts will rejoice on that day, and no one will ever rob you of your joy, no circumstance, no trial, no temptation. You'll have constant joy. Now see the link. In that day... You won't ask Jesus anything because Jesus is not there anymore. I assure you, anything you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. Until now, you've asked for nothing in my name. Ask, talk to God, and you will receive so that your joy may be complete. Isn't that remarkable? That link between your prayer life and your joy. Because you've got the Spirit of God alive in you and working you, you can talk to your Heavenly Father. 
in the name of Jesus, on, on, on the on behalf of Jesus, through his death, you can have access to your Father. Look again at verse 23. Ask in the Father in my name. Uh, they, they, in Jesus' name, it's not just a slogan. It's not just Christian jargon. Jesus is the way that you can ask. You have access to the throne of heaven because of Jesus. You can approach the throne of grace with confidence because of Jesus. You don't need a special place or a special person, a church to pray and a pastor to pray with. You just talk to God. Chapo was once heard to say, uh, someone walked past and he said, Hello, Vicar, say a prayer for me. And Chapo turned around and said, Say your prayers yourself, you lazy old coot. <laughs> now, that's true, isn't it? That we have access to the Father. And the way that you cultivate your joy, the way that you ground your joy is through your prayer life. You can call God your Father. You have access to the creator of this world. You know the, the word that I wish Jesus hadn't said in verse 23? Makes it hard for preachers, this, ver- this word. Anything you ask, he will give you. I wouldn't like that. That's too risky, isn't it? What if somebody asks for something stupid? But Jesus says it. What does he mean? Anything you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. Isn't he just saying... There is nothing that you can't talk to God about. There's nothing that you can't bring to God in prayer. There's nothing that you can't ask your Heavenly Father for. You have a Father who hears you. You have a a Father who cares for you. You've got the Spirit alive in you. So talk to God. Have you trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? We should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Come to the Father with your petitions and your requests and your needs and your wants and your praise. Anything you ask, he will give you. He will answer. Now, if you ask a stupid request, which is ungodly, he's not going to give you that because he's a righteous father. But please don't think you have to hide things from God. Just, just pour out your hearts to him. Do you remember in Philippians 4? Rejoice in the Lord always, I say it again, rejoice. Do not be anxious about anything, but by everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. See the link? Rejoice in the Lord by a healthy prayer life. It's John Piper who said, don't leave your prayer life to chance. You have to plan to pray, don't you? Remember the apostles as they faced persecution? They prayed. The room shook. And they were filled with what? Filled with joy. It's not rocket science. You have joy in Jesus. You are confident of forgiveness. You're confident of adoption. You're confident of reconciliation. You're confident of being righteous. That deep-seated joy. How do you express that? Through your prayer life. And now do you get it? How does the Spirit convict people today? As the word goes out. How does the Spirit cultivate your joy? Through your prayer life. It's really not rocket science. Word and prayer, word and prayer. That's the active work of the Spirit in your life. 
I was actually rebuked when I was, went to this church because I'd kind of been judging churches that didn't talk about the Spirit the whole time. And then suddenly I realized that if Jesus was being preached, if souls were being saved, then the Spirit was at work in that church. That's the work of the Spirit, to point people to Jesus, to bring people to salvation. As the word is preached, lives are being changed. Praise God for spirit-filled churches. So let me ask you again. We, we say the creed, we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who has spoken through the prophets. Do you believe that? That without the Holy Spirit, you can do nothing. Without the Spirit of God in your life, you are helpless Without the Holy Spirit at work in your life, this is just dead words on a paper. Without the Holy Spirit in your life, you are lacking any kind of joy. Let me read from Packer again as I close. The Christian's life in all its aspects, intellectual and ethical, devotional and relational, Upsurging in worship, outgoing in witness is supernatural. Only the Holy Spirit can initiate it and only the Holy Spirit can sustain it. Apart from the Holy Spirit, not only will there be no lively believers and no lively congregations, there will be no believers and no congregations at all. So praise God for the personal work of the Holy Spirit.